This is a show that centers around the most sensational accounts of true crime and tragedy from the year 1892, pulled straight from period newspapers. These stories are at times violent, graphic, and littered with the casual and uncomfortable prejudice common to the era, usually based on race, ethnicity, gender, and religion. Episodes may contain language sensitive to some listeners, and discretion is highly advised. This is a show dedicated to the long-ago victims of these often horrific events. While they may have been forgotten in time, we memorialize them, however briefly, now. May they rest eternally in a peace they did not experience in life. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. I'm Eric Rivenis from the Most Notorious Podcast, and excited to bring you something hopefully very different from what you are used to listening to. I created this podcast because, honestly, I, I love getting lost in old newspapers. I have a keen interest, like you do, in true crime but I am especially fascinated by the stuff that happened during America's Gilded Age, the Old West, and Victorian England. And that's why I picked 1892, a perfect intersection of these times and places. It was also the golden age of yellow journalism, an era when reporters often fervently competed with each other by writing the most titillating stories they possibly could, feeling free to embellish for full effect. Sometimes they were so eager to get the scoop that facts were mixed up, or even outright made up. While modern-day journalists are careful about not providing the more intimate and grisly details of assaults, accidents, murders, and suicides, reporters from this period had little to hold them back. The articles I will narrate for you here are amazing and chilling, windows into the past. And the best of these stories to me are the ones that have been tossed aside and lost to history. They're about victims who deserve to be remembered. By documenting these crimes chronologically through a single year, I really hope it will allow us to understand them in a larger context, especially against the backdrop of the social, political, and economic events that consumed people during that time. That's why each story you hear will be delivered to you on the same day readers would have read about it in 1892, on the 129th anniversary of the day it was printed in newspapers. Also, I personally have a lot of questions. I hope and expect will be answered with this series. Did people from this era suffer from the same types of problems we deal with today? What were the most common motives for committing crime? Did motives differ between men and women? Were immigrants or those of low social status more likely to commit or fall victim to crime? What weapons were the most popular? 
What methods of investigation did authorities utilize to determine the identities of their perpetrators? I have a thousand questions and thought an in-depth exploration of a single year might give me the answers that I am looking for. And perhaps I'll pick up some listeners along the way interested in those very same answers. So here we are. As time goes on, this show may adapt or expand based on what interests us most. Do you enjoy the mystery of a story without knowing an immediate ending? Or do you prefer a conclusion, a a glimpse into the future, and the satisfaction of knowing whether someone paid for the crime in every instance? Is a quick summary of the regular news of the day helpful in providing context or even ambiance? Or do you want me to cut straight to the chase and get to the gruesome stuff? You are welcome to email me at any time at aghastatthepast at gmail.com for suggestions, comments, criticism, or praise. (laughs) And if you like the show, send some positivity my way, please, by leaving a handful of stars on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to the show on. So, enough chit-chat. Let us immerse ourselves briefly and intensely into the dark heart of January 1st, 1892. But first, a quick perusal of the news headlines greeting readers in this brand new year to give a general idea of, of the issues that were facing the United States. Most papers on this day were reporting on the continuing diplomatic troubles between the U.S. and Chile, the result of something called the Baltimore Crisis, which had happened just two and a half months earlier. The situation leading up to the event is very complicated, but basically the U.S. had supported the Chilean government in their civil war, but the U.S. had backed the wrong horse, and the revolutionaries won. So the U.S. offered asylum to many of the supporters of the losing side, and then the new insurgent government demanded that these asylum seekers be handed back. When the American Navy cruiser, the USS Baltimore, offered shore leave to some of their sailors on October 16, 1891, in Chile's port of Valparaiso, one of those sailors spit on a picture of one of the heroes of the Chilean Revolution, a man named Arturo Prat. This insult enraged locals so much so that a mob formed and attacked the American sailors, injuring 17 and stabbing two to death. So fast forward, Friday, January 1st, 1892. Tensions between the two countries were high, as you might imagine. American President Benjamin Harrison demanded reparations, and headlines reported the Chileans defiant. They insisted that the whole affair was nothing but a street row. That went too far. In papers across the country, including the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, headlines blasted news about an explosion in the financial office in Dublin Castle in Ireland. In 1892, Dublin Castle was the seat of British rule in Ireland. Not popular, as one might imagine, among some Irish people who wanted independence. The explosion, it was reported, destroyed two floors of the building, but there were no casualties. Rumors immediately began circulating that the Fenians had planted the bomb, 
with the intent to destroy the Privy Council. And 1892 was a presidential election year in America, and that meant that Republican President Benjamin Harrison, who had beaten Democrat Grover Cleveland in 1888, was the incumbent Republican candidate preparing to run for a second term. The New York Times on their front page pondered what city the Democratic National Committee might choose for its convention. In contention were Detroit, Milwaukee, St. Paul, St. Louis, and Kansas City, with Kansas City being one of the frontrunners due to its exceptional hotel accommodations. But another story in the New York Times ran four columns to the right of this one. A very suspenseful tale for its readers that New Year's Day morning. Oh, and by the way, I have designed the episode today so that the events that you hear kind of escalate, generally speaking, in seriousness. She tired of convent life. Kawina made a desperate effort to effect an escape. She was a young Indian girl, and she tried to jump from a high wall. Crowds stood by and shouted encouragement. St. Louis, Missouri, December 31st. At 4.30 o'clock this afternoon, a young girl running along the top of the high stone wall at the west end of the enclosure surrounding the Convent of the Good Shepherd attracted attention. The building and grounds of this institution occupy an entire block, bounded by Pine, Chestnut, 17th, and 18th Streets. The girl was on top of the wall on the 18th Street side. Loud and excited voices were heard inside the high wall, and it was soon apparent to people on the street that the girl was trying to escape from the institution, and that the nuns and attendants were pursuing her. A great crowd gathered in the street and shouted to the girl to jump. She fled along the entire length of the wall and then, after a moment's hesitation, ran back. All this time, the crowd in the street increased, and the employees of the two large factories just across the street seized work and watched the progress of the chase. There was a continuous shouting of words of encouragement to the girl, who had the sympathy of the 2,000 or more spectators. Those on the outside could not, of course, see what was going on inside the walls, but they could tell by the girl's movements that she was endeavoring to elude pursuers. She paused as if gathering herself for a jump from the top of the 12-foot wall, but while she was hesitating, another face appeared over the wall and its owner clutched at the dress of the would-be runaway. Divining the intention of the newcomer, the girl tried to swing herself down from the top of the wall, but her clothing caught and she was suspended outside the wall. A desperate struggle then began between the girl and her pursuer, who was standing on a ladder trying to draw her back over the wall. The girl was drawn up to the top of the wall, but she broke loose and pushed the ladder on which the person inside was standing from the wall, throwing it to the ground. But there were others on the inside, both nuns and inmates, and other ladders were put up and more persons clambered up to catch the runaway, who had now thrown herself again from the wall, but her dress caught again and she again dangled in the air. The whole convent was now alarmed, and from the windows on the west side protruded the heads and shoulders of the good sisters. 
who watched the struggle with horror and indignation depleted on their countenances. Then came a cry. What if she drops? Run outside somebody quick and catch her and bring her in. It was no sooner said than done. The large gate at the corner of the grounds on 18th Street opened and one of the sisters, followed by a stout female attendant and a man and a boy, rushed out and ran down the sidewalk and stood directly under the figure, which was swinging along the walk. The girl endeavored to escape from the pursuers who were multiplying and holding onto her clothing. All the time, the crowd of men and boys, which was constantly increasing, kept yelling encouragement to the one trying to escape, but none offered to assist her. Finally, one of the pursuers leaned over the wall and, supported by two sisters, caught the girl around the body and tried to lift her up. Her clothing was badly torn in the struggle, and at last they succeeded in pulling her inside. A reporter who had witnessed the entire affair sought admission, but was not allowed to enter, nor would the attendant allow him to see the mother superior or the girl, or give him any information. A later call at the convent brought out the information that the girl who had tried to escape was a protege of Mrs. R.C. Karens, wife of R.C. Karens the millionaire friend of President Harrison and the associate of Steve Elkins. The only name known for the girl at the convent was Coena. Mrs. Karens, who was a very liberal patroness of the institution, had brought the girl here from Arkansas nearly a year ago and had placed her in the convent. She is said to be very beautiful, but wayward. She has Indian blood in her veins, and has given the Sisters of the Good Shepherd a great deal of trouble. So here is a strange little article, printed in Wisconsin's Darlington Democrat, page 2. Eight four cases of salmon. A Missouri livery stable keeper killed by a foolish wager. Robert Severns, proprietor of a livery stable at Mercer, Missouri made a wager that he could eat four cans of salmon in 30 minutes, the price of the salmon being the forfeit. He finished the fourth can in 28 minutes and a half. He then called for a cigar, lit it, and started for the door. Just as he got to the door, he dropped dead. The parties who made the wager are under arrest. Next, a story about two prominent lawyers which caused a bit of a sensation in Cleveland, Ohio, on December 31st. Here is an account of what happened, printed on page one of the Detroit Free Press. Cleveland, December 31st. The most highly sensational horsewhipping ever known to the city occurred here today, in the Society for Savings Building. The principals were attorney Thomas Riley, a bachelor 45 years of age, an attorney, C.L. Hotz, a widower of some two years standing and 53 years old. Hotz is one of Cleveland's most prominent German citizens and very venerable in appearance, while Riley looks to be about 35 years old. Riley's fiance called at his office yesterday afternoon and found a card on his desk saying he would be back at four o'clock. She sat down to wait for him 
Hots entered and they talked. This morning, Riley called at Hots's office and belabored him over the shoulders with a black snake whip. Riley declares that his fiance told him that Hots, who had never met her before, told her she had pretty eyes and hair, asked her if she ever went out at night, and if so, where, intimated that he lived downtown and felt very lonesome since his wife died, and stood and sat insultingly close to her. Hots denies this and says he never said an insulting word. The city is talking of nothing else tonight. So prominent are the two men, especially Hots. <laughs> so that reminds me of the old joke. What do you call a considerate, helpful, sober person at a lawyer's convention? The caterer. So littered among crime reports were accounts of accidents and suicides, often printed on front pages. These accounts were typically short and graphic, leaving little privacy to the grieving family. As an example, this story from the front page of the Philadelphia Times, a grim example of some of the dangers from everyday chores and activities. Plainsfield, New Jersey, December 31st. Mary Conroy, a 16-year-old Church Street girl, was terribly burned this morning while kindling a furnace fire with kerosene oil. The fire pot in the furnace was filled with smoldering embers that refused to burn. In her zeal to start up a quick fire, the girl filled a milk pan with kerosene and emptied the oil upon the glowing wood. The flames that instantly burst into her face burned her horribly. Her face, neck, and shoulders were terribly blistered. She was removed to Muhlenberg Hospital. Small hopes are entertained of her recovery. Printed in the Council Grover Courier out of Kansas. Page one, the headline, His Stomach, A Den of Lizards. Hanover, Pennsylvania, December 21st. Daniel Mummert, a farmer living near East Berlin, this state, had been suffering for some time past from what was supposed to be pulmonary consumption. A week or so ago, he was seized with a violent spell of vomiting and expelled six small lizards from his stomach. His condition became worse, and on Saturday last, he died. It was found that his stomach was literally alive with the reptiles. Mr. Mummert was a supervisor in Paradise Township, and in the course of his work, evidently drank from springs in the roads. And it is thought that in this way, he got the lizards, while very young, in his stomach. I was taken aback at this article and checked Pennsylvania papers for the same story. I found it published on page two of the Shippenberg News with slightly different details. A gentleman named Mummert residing in Hamilton Township, Adams County, it is reported, recently vomited four lizards. It's gone from six to four now. The largest about four inches long and the remaining three about two inches in length, respectively. 
Mr. Mummert had been quite sick for a long time, his complaint being caused doubtless by the presence of the reptiles within his inner economy. Since he had vomited the lizards, his health has improved considerably. But it was only temporary, as he has since died, his stomach having been eaten through by the lizards. <laughs> Let's be realistic. There's no way a living creature could ever survive in someone's stomach for any real period of time, let alone four, five, six of them. If there are any doctors listening who think differently, please contact me and I will happily eat my hat on this one. Off to Vermont now to take a look at the last moments on Earth of the Green Mountain State's most infamous criminal of his day, but now mostly forgotten. On January 1st, 1892, a man named Sylvester Henry Bell met his fate on a scaffold after being tried and convicted for the murder of his wife. Born in Quebec, Canada in 1833, Bell was a farmer who became married to a woman named Marcia Farnsworth, had five children with her, and settled in Fairfax, Vermont, finally gaining his U.S. citizenship in 1883. Just a few months after this accomplishment, he was charged with threatening his family. Evidently, he was an extremely abusive husband and father. Four of his children testified against him in a preliminary hearing. That went nowhere, but Marcia still wanted a divorce and took him to court. This time she won, and he was forced to pay alimony. Sylvester Bell, 54 years old in 1887, remarried this time to a much younger woman named Emma Locke, aged 27. The marriage, as might be expected, didn't go much better. Sylvester Bell did not change his cruel ways, and on December 26, 1889, he murdered her in the most cold-blooded and despicable way possible. For more details on the brutal climax to their evidently difficult marriage, let's take a look at the January 1st, 1892 Rutland Daily Herald article out of Vermont. Page 1. The day he was scheduled to be executed. Keep in mind, this article was written the day before it was published, but still chock full of disturbing imagery. Windsor, December 31st. Sylvester H. Bell, the Fairfax wife murderer, will be hanged here tomorrow. His execution will be the 13th one within the walls of Vermont's state prison, the first being a double one. The preparations for the execution are now nearly completed, and it is probable that everything will pass off smoothly. Bell still continues well, apparently resigned to his fate. The story of the murder is remarkable for its exhibition of a bloodthirsty character. Bell has an uncontrollable temper, and his married life had been marked by many quarrels. He seriously, but not fatally, shot his first wife, by whom he had three sons and two daughters. For this crime, he was arrested, but after a trial, was acquitted. I want to take a quick moment, a quick time out. I want to mention that I did do a bit of investigation on this, and I, I looked for prior newspaper articles documenting this claim that he shot his 
former wife Marcia Farnsworth. Wasn't able to find it, doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I did find an article with, with a more general statement, again, saying that he had abused his family. Anyway, back to the article. Finally, a short time before the murder, Mrs. Bell left her husband. For this crime, he was arrested, but after a trial, was acquitted. His life with his second wife was even more unhappy than his first marriage. And the couple parted many times, but as often became reconciled. Finally, a short time before the murder, Mrs. Bell left her husband and applied for a divorce. On September 26th, in company with the sheriff and her mother, she went to Bell's house after her clothes. When what she desired to move was ready to be taken away, she apparently thought of something else. Starting upstairs again to the room formerly occupied by the husband and wife, she stooped over a trunk or box to find some articles. Bell followed her, and as he seemed willing to assist what he could, the constable remained below. While his wife was thus occupied, Bell crept up behind her and fired at her with a revolver, the bullet entering her head just back of the ears. Falling backwards, she died in a very few minutes, without speaking a word. Constable Hall rushed upstairs and was met by Bell with a smoking revolver still in his hands. Without perceptible emotion, he handed the weapon to the officer, at the same time saying, I have done it. He submitted to arrest without resistance and did not attempt an escape. He was at once taken to St. Albans, where at a preliminary hearing before Justice C.F. Hawley, he was bound over to await trial in the county court. He was put in the county jail at St. Albans and manacled with ball and chain. At the September term of the county court, Bell was tried and on September 16th, sentenced to death by Judge Ross. In the sentence, Bell was ordered to six months solitary confinement instead of three, according to the state law. His counsel used this as a basis for a petition to declare the death penalty void, but the decision of the higher courts sustained the original sentence. The murdered woman was of comely appearance and was by nature kind and quiet. Her maiden name was Emma Locke and she married Bell in 1886. At the time of her death, she was 35 years old. That is wrong. She would have been 31 or 32. At the time of the murder, the murderer seemed little concerned at his awful deed, and at no time has he seemed to regret his work. Finally, to end our episode, I'm going to read you an article out of Vermont's Burlington Free Press, page 2, about a case that I will be bringing you updates on all year. It has twists and turns aplenty, and I promise that there will be a conclusion at the end of 1892-2021. Here it is. A Mysterious Case Young girl missing from a Boston suburb Went to meet her lover for the purpose of getting married, 
but the young man denies having seen her or having any intention of wedding her. Boston, December 31st. Where is Miss Tina Davis? She left her home in Everett one week ago tonight and has not been seen since. She went out to meet a young man who had been paying her attention on the corner a few rods from her home and said she would be back in an hour. She was attired as if she were going out for a short ride, as she had often done before. The young man whom she told her mother she expected to meet was James A. Trefethen, more familiarly known as Bert Trefethen, who carries on a dry and fancy goods store not far from the home of Mrs. Davis. The anxious mother waited far into the night for her daughter's return, but explained the girl's absence on the ground that the couple might have been married. In fact, she had understood from her daughter that such was to be the object of their ride that stormy Christmas Eve. The ceremony was to be informal, their absence brief, and Christmas morning would see them wedded. But Christmas came without the daughter's return. And when she saw Mr. Trefethen, he denied all knowledge of the girl's whereabouts. This raised the mother's alarm. The police were notified and a search for the missing young lady was begun. Mrs. Hannah Davis, the girl's mother, who has a number of other children in Maine, came from that state to Massachusetts some five years ago. She was accompanied by her daughter, Tina, then a girl of about 20 years. Mrs. Davis and her daughter opened a small fancy goods and confectionery store on Perkins Street, Charlestown. Their predecessor in the establishment had bought his fancy goods from Mr. Trefethen, and they replenished their stock from the same dealer as his wagon came from time to time to their store. Miss Davis, who is quite petite in stature, has a bright sunny face, light hair and blue eyes, and proved to have a winning way with the patrons of the store. Mr. Trefethen, before long, began to pay more frequent and longer visits to Perkins Street than the strict demands of business seemed to require. At length, it became to be understood by Mrs. Davis that he was her daughter's accepted lover and so far won her confidence that he borrowed $400 from her and a considerable sum from Miss Davis also. Previous to a year ago or thereabouts, Mr. Trefethen occupied for his store a one-story building on Nickel Street. He afterward removed to the present larger quarters on the street and induced the Davises to purchase the old building and transformed it into a dwelling with store beneath, which Mrs. Davis now occupies, near the corner of Ferry Street and Broadway. The venture proved a good one financially, and the trade gave profit enough for a good living. The attentions of the young dry goods dealer were unremitting. He called two or three times a week, he now says, for business purely. But Miss Davis and her mother accepted them as those of a future husband. 
Miss Davis had never had another lover and trusted this one implicitly. Circumstances led the mother to advise an early marriage. When it is said, Trefethen claimed that it was an impossibility because, as the mother understood, he had a wife living. He was not married, however, but was engaged to a young lady in Roxbury, whom he had been courting while paying attention to her daughter. Mrs. Davis, about to press her daughter's claims, was deterred by Tina's confident assertion that her lover would not fail in his duty to her. Last Thursday, she told her mother that she had arranged to meet Mr. Trefethen that night at 7 o'clock. Just before the hour named, she went out, saying that she would not be out later than 8 o'clock. The girl's failure to return and the professed ignorance of the man whom she went to meet regarding her whereabouts nearly drove Mrs. Davis distracted. She accused young Trefethen of spiriting her daughter away. This he denied. When the police were notified, Chief Emerton went to see Trefethen. Trefethen denied having ever paid Miss Davis any attention, or having made any appointment for her for Christmas Eve, or having any knowledge of what had become of her. He further claimed that he went to Charlestown with his team that night to do an errand, but changed his mind and did not make any call. He said he saw his brother about the hour it was said he was expected at the corner of Broadway and Ferry Street to meet Miss Davis. His brother was asked where he was before Christmas, and he said he was out to his sister's at Maplewood. Did your brother come out to call on you while you were there? asked the reporter. He did not. Where were you the night before Christmas? I can account for myself when the proper time comes, replied the young man. Mrs. Davis is hoping against hope that her daughter may return all right very shortly. The police have thrown this out as a possibility for her to cling to, but they admit that they have nothing to base hope upon. The search of the swamps and marshes about Everett was made yesterday without result. This ends the first episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. Again, if you have any information to add to the cases, go to aghastatthepast.com and leave a comment there. Stay subscribed, because the next episode may drop any day, as randomly as life throws an unfortunate and tragic event our way. <laughs>